I wanted to start with just kind of hopefully we can connect on just like a love for the game of basketball, Absolutely. of course, before I even kind of introduce you. I, I wanted to connect there. Um, I think the sport of basketball has such a, a great style. You are able to somewhat express yourself in, in the sport more than others. I've, I've come to notice over time. And then just the culture and the connection to hip hop music and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it just brings out a love for the game for me, at least. What are your thoughts there? Uh, great question. So I think, um, firstly, like coming from the UK originally, um, it's interesting because I basketball isn't a big sport there yet. I say, yeah, but it, I think it made my passion for the game even more apparent because I had an awareness, even at a young age, of how popular the sport is in other countries. And, you know, one of those reasons I fell in love with it was because I thought it was such a cool sport. And I don't think, you know, you, you have any other sports that come as close to Barcelona in terms of connections to like urban culture, hip hop, etc. And just it's it's so dynamic, fast paced and, and really exciting to watch. And I'm fortunate now, James, I get to work a lot with coaches in other sports. And, you know, they always say the same thing, how lucky I am to work in Barcelona. And I think it's so true. It's you know, it's not like going to see a soccer match where it might be a nil-nil or one-one-zero. There's always constant action. That's true. It definitely is a, a fun sport to watch as well. Um, what about one thing that I just noticed this year? And I'm I'm 42 now. I have a 10-year-old daughter, so you know, I'm just starting to kind of notice different aspects of the game. But one thing I noticed is that in hoops, you're very exposed as a player and as a coach. So. I mean, just physically, you're in a jersey and shorts and and the crowd is right up on you. And if you kind of uh, compare that to something like lacrosse or football, you know, American football, where the bleaches are back, there's some space there and then you have a helmet and, and all the padding and things. So I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah, you actually are pretty exposed in this sport. Absolutely. It's it's interesting just thinking like the environmental constraints related more to basketball i think um yeah definitely obviously it's it can be extremely physical based on the country you're in and, and the style i think it it's funny to see how how different the game is in certain countries compared to others for instance just thinking like in terms of aggression i actually feel like what we see in europe with the defense is a lot more aggressive than what we see in north america in terms of how players use their hands and applying like constant pressure uh, but then it's also interesting to think how in uh, you know a lot of the other sports I'm working in, the kind of conditions are a lot more variable in terms of especially like basketball's being played out, you know, other sports being played outside. And obviously we don't have that as much of our sports. So uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's just something interesting to look at. Yeah, I guess playing indoors and on the court, some of that environmental stuff is a little bit more under control within this sport but um yeah just just the exposure and kind of being out there in front of everyone everyone can kind of see you really clearly and and ha have a little more access to you especially as far as coaches you know sometimes you can have fans that are kind of leaning right into the timeout and that that's just something you notice as a coach um but yeah good to hear can you talk about um, a little bit of your? You don't have to go all the way back with your coaching yet. We can we can get there over time. But I wanted to touch on um, you worked with NBA Europe a little bit, and that that certainly interests me. And I wondered how that 
broadened your horizons. You must have had some good conversations there and some exposure to players and coaches and just different people like networking there. What did you take from that experience and you know, what do you still think about now? Yeah, absolutely. So I think I, I spent three years working for NBA Europe and um, that was a, a actual key part of my background and really something that impacted me being in the position I'm in now. I think firstly, what I loved was I had a really good team to work with primarily, but then just the travel. I mean, I, I think I went to 41 different countries in three years or through NBA trips running clinics, coaching clinics, camps with players of all different abilities from like really elite to grassroots. So for me, getting to like coach in terms of learn how to be adaptable as a coach with loads of different groups, you know, I look at the constraint that approach is not just something for players, but also we can look at it in terms of looking at coaching skill. And for me, it really forced me into being really adaptable in my coaching, doing a lot of coaching where English was not the main language. Sometimes I'd have 80 kids and five basketballs, whereas sometimes I'd have 10 really high level players and like six hoops and a state of the art gym. So those are some really unique constraints. And then also, I think it gave me a great chance to see basketball in different places. And in all honesty, James, I wouldn't say there was like, you know, of course there are countries with more basketball traditions and things, but I'd say what I saw in the three years was the same kind of thing throughout in terms of traditional coaching styles, and I was dealing that with a lot of that more internally, where I was trying to, that's where I first started learning about the constraint that approach and putting that into practice. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that we were doing internally within the NBA was all one on zero blocked constant drills. And that just didn't align with what I was researching and learning about and knowing that this is the future of where basketball is going to go. So it was an interesting dynamic dynamic because I had such an amazing relationship with my colleagues and my whole team. But at the same time, I was so torn because I knew there was a better alternative way, which, you know, I and I at that time, because I was so early understanding it, I couldn't communicate it anywhere close to what I'm doing now and the level I'm at with this. So uh, I remember a lot of dinners I had where, you know, other people at the table would be laughing at my ideas where I'd be talking about why I don't coach fundamentals, why I didn't do one on zero. But in fact, what that did was it made me more determined to go away, research, learn it more and come back in a better place so that I could actually describe this stuff and help potentially thousands and thousands of coaches incorporate this into how they coach. So that was why I eventually left for that reason, um, so that I could actually put all those ideas into practice and show coaches what this stuff looks like. Mm. Yeah, I could see how that would be hard holding back some of the conversations as you're as you're studying and learning this type of stuff and just not being in the right environment yet maybe to to articulate it or or to kind of translate it to people. So that's interesting. I was going to ask a little bit about that. Um, so this this past year, I spent a ton of time studying the ecological dynamics and the constraint-led approach and um, conceptual basketball. And I'm not I'm currently not coaching. I was coaching a high school team, uh, high school boys for three years. And coming off the previous season last year, I just dove. You know, I I just. To be like really clear, I was not successful in those three years at all. I really struggled. And then I found this this approach. So I dove in. I said, well, I just have to learn everything and 
and I studied like crazy. I actually didn't end up going back to the to the coaching position this year. But boy, I'm so happy to have learned this stuff and who knows um, what I'll do in the future. But it was so humbling to learn this type of stuff. And I think one of my strengths is humility because when you approach this, this type of coaching, you think, well, no, everyone else is doing it the traditional way. So that's probably the right way. And I should stick with that. And, and that's what I know. And that's how I was coached. And, you know, when I was coaching, it was basically take all the drills that I learned from the coaches that coached me and then research the heck out of the internet and try to find the best drills. Yeah. And then if I can get more reps than the other coaches and, and better drills, um, then, then that's, what's going to kind of build the program and win. So it was, but it was very humbling to kind of admit that, oh, really what I wasn't doing a lot of the time was creating game-like situations in practice and being really creative with, you know, small-sided games and that kind of thing. Um, but it's hard to admit to yourself, I guess, is kind of what I'm yeah. saying. So what are your thoughts there as far as traditional coaches I guess we have to have some empathy. I mean, I, I have like empathy for my sure. my old self because it, it's almost embarrassing looking at some of the practices we were doing and and now what I know just just from the research. So can you talk to that a little bit? Absolutely. Well, firstly, what an interesting point you raised, James. I think it's great that you you shared that and were vulnerable enough to share that. I think firstly, looking at why more coaches aren't you know adopting the cli i've actually found james that overwhelmingly far more high school and youth coaches uh contacting me and trying to implement this into their coaching and learn about it versus coaches at the professional ncaa and mba levels and I, I think that's really interesting to me because i think you know if anything it's like you'd figure being a professional coach being paid to do that it would be more important to be open-minded, learn and have a way to coach, which is cutting edge based on research. But instead I'm finding it's a lot of the high school coaches who are really keen on bettering themselves and learning an alternative way. And I, I think it's, it's really, when we look at why the CLA is not being adopted, I think it's because it's, you know, a lot of coaches will coach their whole lives and not really understand what skill is and what skill means. And it's very common for professional coaches everywhere, whether they're working with youth or professionals to be coaching, but have no idea about motor learning and what skill acquisition really means. So therefore, if you don't have a theoretical framework for how you coach, why you coach and what you're simply doing on court every day, well, you're just going to keep doing the same things which you were taught or the same things you see around you. And you're just going to see the game through a silo and through a box which is completely different to how someone sees the game with a theoretical understanding of skill sees the game. So I, I think that's, you know, the biggest problem is when, when, when coaches don't get to grips with the theoretical underpinnings, then they have no reason to do something else. And they will just coach how they were coached. Um, and they won't feel like there's something else out there. They won't feel that inner pressure to change. So I, I really think it's, um, you know, those are basically constraints, which we've just spoken about, which are prohibiting the constraint led approach from being more wide, you know, being adopted more widely. But I do think that's changing. And for me, I don't feel, I, I don't feel any type of, 
like aggression or angst over coach over traditional coaches. I work with, you know, in, in an environment um, in the past where there are a lot of traditional coaches, especially my last job coming, coming from Belgium. And, you know, it's frustrating and I know how it feels, but instead it, it's more like, all right, how can I educate and empower those around me so that they want to learn and do this stuff and realize that there's a much, much better play, uh, way to go about things. And that's what, what excites me as opposed to getting frustrated and angry that more coaches aren't on the same page. Yeah, for sure. Um, now, how, now that I have a, a young daughter, you know, she's 10 years old. Uh, she's kind of entering the game, still just feeling it out. But thinking about your approach and, and the research um, that I've kind of been doing over the past year, it's so interesting to see them play out there. You know, think about a, um, a 10-year-old girls basketball game. And uh, I used to I used to think, you know, the more ball handling, uh, the better. That was the number one skill that if, if they could just dribble better, kind of and everything would come from that. Um, but, you know, watching and learning lately, I realized, oh, like the number one skill that they need to have is decision making. They need to learn how to what do I do in, in these dynamic situations, which, you know, the game of basketball is so dynamic and presents all these different situations. Um, we can teach them the right, the right left layup, uh, you know, right foot, left foot, and go up for right hand layup. But how many times does that actually happen in a game? And what's more realistic is just everything is so totally different within the game. So can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, when I look at skill, I, I see it as a functional fit between a player and, and what's happening around them in the game, aka their environment. So, you know, typically, like decision making has been something through the traditional approach that has been deprived. And, you know, coaches would resort to decomposed drills. That means doing something without defense. And they're hoping that by teaching an action, then somehow players can just plug in the decision at the right time in a game. But fortunately, as we know now, it just it doesn't work like that. And something too I see a lot, James, would be coaches who, you know, they they like some of my stuff, not all of it, but they like bits. But then, you know, they, they might do some small-sided games, which obviously is a huge part of the constraint that approach. But then they will resort to still doing in like player development, things like one-on-zero, you know, whether that's dribbling up and down, doing random finishes, one-on-zero shooting. And for me, that approach is not the constraint-led approach. That's incompatible to what we're talking about in terms of using the CLA underpinned by ecological dynamics. So for me, it's like you're all in or you're not in at all. And I, there's no middle ground and you can't you know, decide to do some small-sided games you know, doing parts of practice and then go back to teaching moves and doing one-on-zero that that's a very different approach. And, and I think a lot of that's more like a teaching games for understanding, aka games approach. The constraint led approach is not that. Of course, there are some similarities, um, but under the constraint led approach, we wouldn't, you know, decompose and have to resort to doing things like one on zero, like ever. The only one on zero we would do would be differential learning, which is, you know, getting to that's a different approach. And it's still in shares the same traits of repetition, not repetition, variability, etc. Um, 
so I think the key thing just for coaches listening to this, James, is that we have to produce players where they're not, um, where all the information sources for what they're going to see in a real game aren't deprived in the practice environment. So they have to have these opportunities, these affordances, we call them, aka opportunities for action to, you know, whether it's finishing, passing, shooting, where every situation is going to be slightly different. And that players, as opposed to being taught a technique, they're just going to emerge and adapt to the situation in front of them. Interesting. Yeah, a couple of thoughts I have. One is that for these coaches that are transitioning, you know, I'm, I think my personality lends itself to being very open. And I actually like radical things and, and things on the sure. French. I'm very attracted to something that's different and I want to learn. I have kind of that growth mindset but i you know a lot of other folks aren't like that so i could see how it would take some time to add this in to their philosophy you know a little bit here and there and then over time maybe transfer over i don't see a lot of people just jumping at once into yeah. full cla so yeah oh it's a great point i think people want to dip their toes in the water and it's funny because when i look at me what i did what i kind of did james is i did i went full in cla but not with shooting Shooting was like the, the one thing that um, I couldn't quite figure out. And then when I really learned about differential learning, everything changed because then that was like a great approach to go full CLA and then still get enough repetition without repetition through DL tasks. But I, I think, you know, the best thing is to go all in because that's how you learn. And when I went all in, that's when I was able to take my manipulation of constraints to a whole new level. Yeah, so there's a commitment piece there, I think, when yeah, you, know, you got to sure. jump. Boom. You got to, yeah. As I grew up, um, you know, one of my idols, I guess, as a coach was Mike Krzyzewski at Duke. And one thing I, I noticed about him and just obviously his character, but then um, he could certainly get fierce and intense, but he was a sit-down coach. And, you know, you mentioned empowerment earlier and... I think about player empowerment a lot. And so one thing I wanted to do as a coach was during the games, I didn't want to be barking out every single order to the kids. I wanted them to be able to have freedom to express themselves, to play within the structure of our program. Um, but a lot of coaches that seemingly, you know, more traditional and a lot of coaches that I played against were kind of barking out orders. They're louder. Um, there's a lot of, you know, dribble over there, screen there, pass to him, do this, do that. It happens at the youth level a lot too. And a lot of times it just makes me cringe because, you know, we want the players to be able to have some freedom and have fun in the game. Um, obviously there are times when a call needs to be made by the coach, but can you yeah. talk a little bit about that freedom and empowerment piece? Yeah. Absolutely, James. So I think what we're seeing there is coaches are trying to control the uncontrollable. And when you're basketball, we have to accept the basketball is a complex system. And what I mean by that is it's unpredictable. You know, small things could lead to outputs that we have no, you know, no idea what they could be. And we can't predict and control what will happen possession to possession. And typically what I see is, you know, the coaches that try and control everything and call the offense every time or run a really patterned motion offense the situations where players actually create advantages and score are where they're going off script and they're not actually doing the thing that the coach called or wanted. And that's the irony behind it. So, you know, the big problem is, 
you know, instead of we've got to move away from these old school offense. And I include read and react as part of that. So for me, that's why I think the conceptual offense framework, the BDT offense, uh, conceptualoffense.com for more coaches interested in checking this out. It's all about, you know, how can we coach and develop players to thrive in the chaos? And as opposed to having to need very rigid patterned offenses, have them really adaptable to just play off triggers and have great coverage solutions. And of course, you know, we will still call things, but that will just be on dead balls only. So a lot of the time when the ball is live, players are just playing, making plays, adapting to working with each other, acting upon relevant shared affordances, et cetera. And that style for me really fits in with the constraint-led approach because it's the epitome of what an offense would look like um, that aligns with what ecological dynamics is. And I don't believe that you can run a traditional offense and really be uh, a coach kind of you coaching in an ecological way because it's just, again, it's incompatible. So that it's been a lot of enjoyment for me over the last few years coming up with this way to play basketball. And I think just in terms of from a pure development and joy perspective, I don't think it comes close to finding an, you know, an offense that would match that. Nice. Very nice. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about your philosophy. And as I kind of go here, I want to just remind that there's, I have a lot of humility here because I don't want to seem like I'm bashing other coaches or traditional coaches. I'm, I'm actually bashing my prior self um, because I did, you know, all of this stuff that I'm that I'm kind of waking up to. But another thing I wanted to talk about is coaching with with uh, fear or humiliation, um, because it, that's something that I actually noticed really quickly when I was one of my first years coaching junior varsity boys. Um, I, there was a situation in practice, and I had been coached. I, I've had some great coaches myself um, that, that coached me, but then I also did have a couple that used kind of humiliation and, and fear. Um, so I, was, I, had, I had both, so I was kind of figuring out my own way. Um, but, but during one practice, a player did something, and, and then I just quickly said, what are you, stupid? And it, it caught me off guard. Like I caught myself like, oh, wow, I, I just went there. And, and now I know I don't want to ever go back there. You know, I, I had a conversation with him the next day and, and I, but that kind of was a, a moment for me when I knew that I just couldn't do that, that fear or the humiliation. Sure. But I still see a lot of coaches doing it today. Obviously we've made a ton of progress, um, in the right direction, but it seems like sports is kind of one of these institutions where that, that can happen. Um, it's actually it could be seen as like respected in a lot of a lot of cases a lot of the best coaches or what society deems like he's the best coach um are are coaches that are are leading with fear and that kind of thing uh can you talk about that a little bit yeah absolutely so unfortunately that emulation piece is for me i think a very uh powerful constraint which is what led to this traditional approach still being so widespread and, you know, it's normal because obviously coaches see coaches in very senior positions getting paid a lot of money and they see their behavior and they think it's acceptable to do the same thing in their environment, working with maybe 14 year old kids. Um, so I think it's very important that coaches have an awareness of that and understand who they're coaching. But two, there's just simply no evidence at all 
that coaching using fear tactics and shouting and abuse, there's simply no evidence that that will uh, improve the ability uh, or the performance of your players. Uh, if anything, it's all the, all the evidence out there overwhelmingly shows it's the opposite. The, uh, and, you know, just from an ecological perspective, think about what shouting and stuff does. It basically attunes players out of acting on relevant affordances because they're scared of making mistakes, committing turnovers, etc. So for me, I think self-determination theory is uh, something a lot coaches should know about. And again, it aligns with the ecological approach perfectly. And it's basically just the, it comes from some research from Desi and Ryan, and it talks about three key things, which is competency, autonomy, and relatedness. And it talks about how human, as human beings, we have an innate need to be uh, satisfied by those three things. So if we can incorporate those things into our coaching, it has big implement, implications. So for instance, with competency, you know, that comes through small-sided games. Players will become more confident as a result of improving their abilities in context. And they're obviously going to become more skillful and have more functional movement solutions. Autonomy, you know, players feel like they have a say. So that could be as simple as coaches giving players, uh, like, the opportunity to co-design practices or give them five minutes in a practice at the start. Maybe they plan their own warm-up or maybe 10 minutes halfway through, they plan their own shooting activities, right? And And I think, too, conceptual offense, well, that's, autonomy the whole way because players have you know the, their own decisions in terms of what triggers to call you know what how they're going to start dominoes it's not me controlling everything under the coach and then the, the last piece is relatedness you know can they relate not just to their peers but their coaches and i think this is huge because if you're coaching by fear you're not going to create opportunities to do that um the their players are just going to see you as, as the coach as some high and mighty being which to me is certainly not what coaching is all about and then also i, I find in a lot of traditional settings that the, the atmosphere and the practices are just horrible uh whereas you know i'd say you walk into my practice and you see an environment of joy players have smiles on their faces they're giving each other feedback they love playing basketball and they love being there so i think it's very easy to think about you know what environment is it that you want to be in every day what environment do you want to live in um, what environment are your players going to enjoy more that's such valuable information, man. Nicely said. Um, can you talk about your current situation now? Like, where where are you coaching, and and um, what team are you coaching, and are you in season now? Absolutely. So I am in season. So I, I like I say I'm wearing a lot of hats. So um, primarily, I I run basketball immersion with Chris Oliver. So we're the, the fortunate enough to be the top coaching resource for basketball coaches in the world. So we've got a big membership community as well as the BDT offense. And I'm also doing a lot of consulting now through immersion for NCA teams, NBA teams who are interested in, in skill acquisition and applying some of the things we've spoken about today. So that's a big part of what I do. Uh, I do a lot of that remotely, of course, and then some in-person visits, uh, a lot of work with federations, doing coach education, etc. Second part is I'm a consultant for Paris Basketball, and they're a team in the Euro Cup. So really exciting. I think Will Weaver, the head coach, loves using evidence-based ideas. So he wanted to bring me in to incorporate the CLA in the pro environment. And that's great because we've got a bunch of NBA prospects, and it's a really high-level um, Euro Cup, top French league, obviously. 
And then my last thing is my day, my kind of my day to day, but I'm doing all these jobs full time. And that's running uh, college prep here in Italy in a town called Borgo Monero. We have 20 players from all over the world, 14 different countries, mostly Europe, but we've got three New Zealanders and a, a one kid from the Caribbean as well. And our goal is to develop these players for college. So I, you know, I think this year we'll have at least nine players go on to Division One and Division Two basketball in the class of 23. And we're doing everything here. You know, the, the kind of goal with me doing this was I wanted to be the first program in the world to show people what using an ecological approach looks like in basketball, athletic development, everything. Good for you, man. I respect the courage there. Um, can you? I Appreciate couldn't that. find your schedule online uh, for college prep. Is it on the college prep website or is it hard to find? Yeah, so it's actually, it's very unique because we can't play regular season games. I mean, the season here in Europe would go from September to like May, but we can't play in the Italian league because all the kids are foreign and they have a rule, a rule where you can have only two players on a team from outside Italy because they want to develop domestic talent. So it makes it difficult for us because it means we have to find teams who want to play friendly games in season, which isn't always easy when teams have their league games or we do tournaments. So uh, all the games we we, ha we we still get to play about, I'd say about 25 to 30 games each season. Um, and that's all through exhibitions and tournaments. And they're actually all on our YouTube channel, which is just College Prep Italy. And can you find future upcoming games on the YouTube absolutely. channel? Yes, absolutely. Oh. And also on our Instagram, we typically share, when we have games, we always share uh, on the Instagram, like when the game will be and, and all of that stuff. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Um, can we get into a little bit of nitty gritty with the coaching? You know, maybe some examples I think would help as I was diving in myself and I was working with some young kids and working with my daughter, that kind of eight, you know, 10 years old. And, you know, I have uh, her and a friend or her and two friends in the gym. And I was thinking, okay, well, how can I apply this? So I think it would be helpful um, for other coaches maybe to hear. For instance, um, the offensive skills are certainly lacking in those younger ages. So when you have a kid that really can't dribble or get to the hoop, the defender's just going to steal the ball. So how can we use those affordances, constraint-led approach, and, and what's kind of some examples that we can use here? Absolutely. So the, the key thing for coaches to understand is there's no such thing as fundamentals. Um, and children's skills can be developed and skill is emergent in itself. But the idea is that through using these small-sided games, you know, skills will develop within that context. So even the kid who can't dribble, if you play a tag game one-on-one, -on -one, they're going to learn different ways to dribble very quickly, right? And they're going to lose the ball. Of course, it's going to look messy, but that is the process of them figuring it out and actually learning. Um, so, so for me, the key thing, especially with beginners, is still use small-sided games. You don't ever need to do one-on-zero. Um, instead, you've got to simplify the task as opposed to decompose it and take the defense away. So, you know, what I might do working with beginners is play um, where the defense uh, can only maybe use one hand to steal the ball, so they can't use two hands. Or maybe I'll make a rule where the defense cannot steal the ball. They can only block it at the end. You know, at the very early stages of a player, you know, just picking up a ball for the first time. I might do something like uh, the defense cannot jump, so they can't block. So 
you know, I'll just add, use these constraints, manipulate constraint. Maybe I'd make more two on ones. So the plus one, you know, it's obviously a lot easier to make decisions and, uh, you know, be able to dribble, finish, et cetera, when, when you, when you have that plus one advantage. So I'll do a bunch of different things like that and just really make sure that the challenge, the, the optimal challenge point is good. And what I mean by that, James, is that I don't want to see them struggling too much, but at the same time, I don't want it to be too easy. So um, I'm trying to find that sweet spot where they feel like they can have success, but they're not going to have success every time. Okay. Um, and that's where I'll be scaling constraints accordingly so that I can be desiring to get the optimal challenge. And, and it's going to look different for different players. So, you know, one player might be playing a live one-on-one and that's a good level of challenge. Whereas another player, way too difficult. We need to have more constraints on the defense so the offensive player can have some success. And that's where it gets really interesting because instead of treating everyone the same, you know, you're able to scale accordingly and really meet the learners where they're at with what they need. That's great. I think this is where a lot of creativity comes in for a coach as well. You know, a lot of us think we're we're not creative if we can't draw or paint or something like that. But I found that within this type of coaching, creativity is huge. Mm. So how because we have to rethink a lot of how you know how are we going to shape this? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. So it's for me, it comes from. Um, you know, the small side of games you create, like you have a, have a recipe book, just like a, like a cook. And the idea is, you know, you have 15 go-to small side of games, which you can easily find through, you know, all of the resources just I share on Twitter and basketball immersion. You know, I've probably shared hundreds and hundreds through the years. So all a coach needs is like 15 small side of games to start and then talk about different ways you might manipulate constraints. So that means what scoring systems might you use? to encourage certain behaviors. So for instance, if you want to encourage left-hand dribbling, you might say that um, the offense gets more points by scoring on their left hand than on their right hand, right? Then of course, think about how else you might manipulate the activity through more adding more players, more offense or more defense, or changing the space that the players have to play in, or the rules of that particular small side of game. So these are examples of constraint manipulation. So then the idea is have 15 small-sided games and then think of the ways you can manipulate those small-sided games unique to each game. And then, you know, the idea is that you come more familiar with this and you're starting to really become effective at using the constraint that approach. And that's when, you know, I think you can become more creative and really invent, that's when you invent new small-sided games. I mean, uh, where I'm actually doing a, a library right now here, James, of all the small-sided games we're using, the activities, and we've got something like, something ridiculous, like 340 pretty unique things because some of them have very kind of specific affordances or nudging players towards very specific things from, our, from a game that, you know, they might encounter. But you don't need that at the start, you know. You can just have a few, and, and that's more than enough to really help your players and make them way better than doing all these traditional drills. That's great, thank you. Um, one thing I notice about this is that language is central. You know, the, the nomenclature, the, the labeling of things. And I'm an English major, so I really like that part of it. I like um, coming up with a language for a program. I think as 
as we get to, into the older ages, this might be more important. Or, or if you're building a program as opposed to just coaching a, um, a younger youth team. But it's, it's certainly a, a huge thing. And then I, one thing I remember you saying or that I took from you is the approach to use, you know, metaphorical language as opposed to telling a player, you know, do this with your body, do this with your hands to just say, you know, be a skyscraper. And that takes yeah. it out of their body. Can you can you talk about language a little bit? Yeah, great question. So I think um, it's all about external feedback. And again, this is um, internal versus external feedback comes from a researcher called Dr. Gabrielle Wolf, but it aligns with the constraint that approach perfectly. Because again, we're not telling the athlete what exactly to do. Um, we're creating situations where that will come from them. But what we can do is, of course, we can cue if we want to, A, obviously, if something unsuccessful is happening, like they're fouling, right? Like that example of a wall up, if they're fouling by bringing their hands down, that's a great example of cueing. We're not telling them, put your hands at this angle right up, which makes it very, that's internalized, that makes it very difficult for players to act on that feedback. Instead, by saying be big like a skyscraper, that's an effective cue because reducing the risk of fouling while increasing the risk of getting a stop or getting a block shot. So I think, you know, when, when we look at feedback traditionally, it just, the, all the internal feedback doesn't align with the CLA anyway because it's coaches trying to teach players a very specific move, which would never do. But instead, you know, I think with the ex externalization of feedback, it's more for certain concepts we're not trying to get players to maybe move a very, very specific way every time. We're giving them possibilities, but trying to basically get them more aware of their intention and their actions through externalizing without um, having to resort to traditional feedback. It seems like we'd have to be a little bit more patient in this approach because yes. we're, we're nudging instead of directly telling <laughs> But, and then we also have to be patient with our own creativity because we need to think of how we're going to do this. So I think time becomes a factor. Yeah. For sure it does. And I, I think it's a great point. Like it's, you become really uh, self-aware as a coach in terms of, okay, do I really need to say this or what am I going to say in this situation? And how am I going to say this in a way which is ecological in terms of not saying to them you must do this so it's for me i find I'm, i use a lot of language like have you thought about this or um what do you think about this situation here or um i know you did this but an alternative could be so i'm basically planting seeds in their minds as opposed to saying you know this is what you must do now we do have some situations in our offense where it's more black or white so, for instance, maybe we're going to set a pick and roll and a big doesn't like crack and roll hard or slip. They just kind of hold their pick and pop randomly. That's a situation where it would be more black or white. But again, it's more a concept. We're not telling them, OK, I want you to do this with your body. We're just saying slip hard. How they slip is up to them, you know, and it's, we're not going to control that. I see. Um, so we talked ab about some of the the nitty gritty of the you know the youth and and dealing with them and their small sided games and the constraints we can give them. What is something that you're kind of working through with your team now 
are there any challenges that you're having within within the world or what's something you're kind of studying or researching yeah so i mean basically james this is why it's been a great place for me to be the last three years because i'm researching stuff every morning and then i'm applying it every afternoon in our practices so you know i'm reading a lot of papers research journals the latest kind of things emerging from the ecological world and then just thinking about it and how I can apply it as, as a practitioner, because that's what I am. I'm, I'm not a academic. I did history at university, but I'm trying my best to make sense of the science and interpret it and, and live it every day. So that's great. I think, you know, I get so many challenges here because I get, a, I, I get a lot of reps firstly. I mean, every week I'm coaching typically about 10 hours on court. So maybe slightly more. So, you know, I'm really reflective in terms of always trying new things. And I think it's great because I, di I didn't want to go to the pro route early. I could have gone that way, but I knew I wouldn't have had these reps. And I think I'm going to be way more valuable for organizations in the future and what I contribute to the table because I've had these hours and not many coaches will have had, you know, that experience on the court and with the research. I think compared to what I've been doing. So then um, in terms of challenges, we always have unique constraints. And I think the fact that every, every, the players here are age 16 to 19, so they all have, you know, their own extensive bibliographies in terms of where they come from. A lot of them obviously coming from very traditional practice environments, but also I think obviously a huge constraint is that we're not in a league. So it's like, you know, how can I really motivate the guys and, make this a really enjoyable experience so that we make them really improve and have competitive games without having that. And then two, I think um, there's a huge uh, difference in abilities. We, we have some players here who could be like Euro Cup level professionals in Europe. And then we have some players who are beginners pretty much and who um, have a very, very limited experience of basketball, but wanted to move away from home. And, you know, we, we have to take everyone because there's a budget that we need to hit to run this program. So I think, you know, being able to coach in the, in the midst of that and be able to run a very sophisticated offense and defense, which we do and have small sided games where, you know, there's a lot going on in them. That's not easy. So I think what we really had to do is manipulate constraints as well as we can and really create very adaptive training environments and and i think you know if, if you could do it in this environment you can do it anywhere i imagine onboarding new players is could be one of the challenges yes. and transferring oh, over that's a great point because we've had a lot of like new players drawing later mid-season and obviously you know we have a glossary of probably like 150 words now of course knowledge you know knowledge about versus knowledge of Gibson doing it in the game is far more important, but the language helps because it just players can quickly communicate and, you know, we can players can get on the same page of things, talk about possible solutions. So obviously it takes a long time to learn that stuff. But I think we've been really creative with like use how we use video, getting that to the new players, just quizzing them. I, you know, I think, you know, they need to have a knowledge of these terms. And then obviously the most important thing is what we're doing to actually get them demonstrate that knowledge within the game itself. Totally understand. Um, what what are you doing in the off season? You're obviously very busy um, in season with that kind of thing. What yeah, are your, what are your other interests just personally? So I play uh, saxophone too. Um, and, and then I think I'm, I'm really um, 
for me, like getting the balance between work and life is really important. I see a lot of coaches, especially in Europe, they have no time to do things off the court. And I really think it impacts on their work because they're not able to be as creative. They're not able to learn new things. They're not able to learn about things like the constraint led approach because every minute of the day is spent on basketball. So for me, I'm a big believer in having at least one day in the week where I go and do something not basketball related. Yesterday, I went to the sea here in Italy just for that day, walked around, had lunch. Um, and then, you know, just finding ways to switch off and find some inner peace. I mean, I, I, I would say I work very hard, um, but I work incredibly efficiently and very quickly. And having the rest days enables me to do that as opposed to, you know, working like 50% of my capability. I work 100% of my capability, but in a smart way. Um, so, I mean, with our off season last year, I was actually traveling the whole off season. I was running a, I was on a US tour doing constraint that are showing coaches in the US what using constraint that approach looks like. So I went to 15 different places. It finished up with NBA Summer League where it was cool because that was kind of my first time where I saw an interest in NBA teams and learning more about the work I'm doing and you know, NBA teams wondering how they could apply it in their context. So, you know, this year, again, I'm, I'm actually staying in Europe primarily this summer. I'm going to run a bunch of coaching clinics with German, Swedish, Polish, UK and Icelandic coaching federations who are moving, who are obviously interested in this stuff. I've got some camps, which I'm actually running in Italy. So players from all over the world are going to come and work with me for like different weeks at a time, do all this stuff and coaches will learn about it too. And then I'm going to go to summer league again and, and have some more kind of interesting conversations about how we can implement this stuff at the highest level of our sport. Very nice. You mentioned something there with your downtime. I've been, I've been working on a project lately and kind of studying some high-level performers. And one thread that I'm really noticing, which I think I had heard a long time ago and I, I knew of, but it's just really hitting home um, with, the, with the recent studies, is that people that perform highly tend to when they're when they're doing the work they're really on you know that we talk about that flow state or just ultimate focus sure. the 100 percent in but then when they shut down you know their phone is off they're with their children they they really know how to shut down and there's there's a definite on yeah. and off um instead of what i think a lot of us do or most people is you know we constantly have the phone we're constantly checking the email even when we're not at work so can you can you talk about that dichotomy? And uh, I think you touched on it there. It seems like you're good at stopping coaching when you're done practice. You know, absolutely. Well, I think what you spoke about, James, a great example is like Will Weaver, basically my you know my boss at Paris. I think he's incredible at that. Like he's always said that, for instance, like he would rather as coaches we prioritize getting to know a player and building a relationship with them and finding out what's going on in their personal lives as opposed to crunching something on synergy. And that's the complete opposite to how a lot of coaches at the pro level are operating. And I think too, you know, the biggest reason that basketball coaching has not become modern, progressive, evidence-based is because of what coaches have demanded of the subordinates in the franchises and, you know, these junior coaches have never had a chance, well, not junior, but these coaches who are more junior than the head coach subsequently have not had the time to learn about this because they've already been stressed or doing other things. Um, so I think 
sorry, Italian office sorry about it. background noise. Um, so I think it's just, you know, having like personal values is key and organizational values. So for instance, I know, say I interviewed for an organization tomorrow, if I was asked what my values were, I'd be very clear. And one of my values would be, uh, I'm a very hard worker, but uh, I need some off time because the field that I work in requires, you know, a lot of, it's not easy to go through these papers, think about it and apply it. It requires a lot of deep thinking. So for me to be at my best, you know, I, I'd, you know, I, I'd need to have, you know, like one day a week where I can focus on something, not basketball. And I think it's a really interesting conversation then um, in terms of what franchises would align with that. But I think that's where you find the match because, you know, quite frankly, if if a franchise couldn't see the importance of that, I think it would be very different. I'd, I'd feel like my kind of values have been compromised and I wouldn't be able to perform that job to the rest of my abilities. So, you know, it's it's really interesting. I think something which is key for young coaches is the more I feel like a lot of younger coaches would just are too willing to kind of be completely owned by the job. But I feel like if you come at this at a different angle and you have the skill set, i.e., you know, understanding the CLA and doing this completely differently, you have more bargaining power than a coach who's, you know, going to go in and do it the same way because they feel like they have to do it. Whereas I feel like I'm offering something very unique, if that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely does. I, I really respect what you said. I'm going to take a lot from that. Um, being able to articulate your own values and to, to kind of, show it, i guess articulate what you stand for um that that's really important and i'm i'm glad you said that so thanks for that um my pleasure well, yeah i'm gonna be uh gonna be following gonna be rooting for you guys and i can't wait to see you know what's next for you um i'm just excited to watch you kind of continue spreading your word and and, and i want to continue singing your praises so um i'm really happy that you were able to take some time and join me Oh, it's my pleasure, James. I'm really grateful for the support. And for me, what's really exciting about this job is, you know, coming into contact with coaches like yourself. You know, I think the ecological network, I found so many allies and friends in other sports. And I want to grow that in basketball because I think this approach has the chance to not only radically develop players, but also just uncover like a whole new kind of life potential in coaches players because it changes their perspective on life so i'm really grateful for your support and i uh, hope the listeners got something out of today